What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let's go to the Lord. God, would you please open our eyes that we might see you and and open our ears that we might hear you. Jesus, would you grant us ears to hear that which you have for each one of your children here tonight. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, I might communicate your word faithfully. For I cannot do it on my own. And I pray that we would all receive from you according to your faithfulness because we cannot do that on our own either. And so we are completely dependent upon you and your grace to work so that we might see you, so that we might know you, and so that we might live for you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, James 2.14 to 26 is our text tonight. Did you guys notice a little theme, how this kind of connects with this morning? Yep. I did that on purpose. (laughs) Um, Different, though. Um, Different reference to the life of Abraham, and yet still James brings about, um, or brings us back to the passage that we read from Genesis uh, 15 this morning, when God covenanted with Abraham. Um, And yet it's interesting that James uses the incident with Abraham and Isaac to prove that God had accounted to Abraham righteousness because of his faith, you see. And so there's different kinds of faith that James talks about here. But the, the main goal is that our lives would show forth that we have 
indeed been given faith by God for life. So let's get into the text. So verse 14, James says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? How reliable is a, is a profession of faith in God? James is saying. To determine one's state of relationship with God. Now, culturally, this is very relevant because how many people do we run into that you know, walked up an aisle 40 years ago at an altar call or, um, you know, invited Jesus into their heart at a camp or something. Um, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Right? And then we might protest, argue against it, and say, well, you must have good fruit. And usually you'll hear something like, well, the Lord knows my heart. And then I would say, that's scary. <laughs> Because your faith isn't godly. And that's what James is getting at tonight. Can faith save? He says in verse 14. And what he means is, not that is salvation by faith, but is the faith referred to in the first sentence, able to save, is a faith that is based on man's understanding and therefore not a real faith at all given by God. Is that enough? He asks the question, if there's any value, if there's any profit in just a profession of faith all by itself. Now, we know the answer is no, but we need to see also that there's a distinction of a particular absence in this equation of profitless faith. And that is the absence of works. And so there's many different ways to define the faiths that James speaks of here in chapter 2. And there's also scripturally different ways to define works. It's not just any works. It's works from God and unto God, essentially. Verse 15 and 16. So, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Okay, same question again from 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says they have faith but no works? So here is someone presented with the opportunity to do a specific work, and that is to clothe and feed Not just anyone, I think it's important to notice particularly that James says a brother or a sister, which draws my mind to the first epistle of John where he makes so clear that we cannot say we love God but then not love his children, our own brethren. Right? So you're presented with this opportunity to do this work in the name of God, but all you do is offer words instead of clothes and instead of food. And so that one who was naked and was hungry now has had nothing added to them. Uh, In fact, I would say that such a misrepresentation of Christ would be a detriment potentially to somebody. Not just a lack of profit. If somebody professes faith in Jesus but doesn't work the works of Jesus, then there is no faith in Jesus, is what 
James is saying here, and his example here shows that one always acts according to what they truly believe. Regardless of what they say they believe. Our lives always produce the fruit of the true states of our hearts. So, it doesn't matter what we profess. It matters that our our faith and our life coincide and harmonize perfectly in God's will. So he says in verse 17, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So verse 17 is basically just saying that a clear explanation um, of the question posed in 14 is 15 and 16. Okay, so... We have the question in 14, 15, and 16 answer, and then 17 to, to, to give emphasis points back and says that was the answer. That was it. And so, by the way, anyone who offers hope of profit to anyone that is just based on profession alone, I think would fall under the category of what we read in Galatians chapter 1 this morning for preaching another gospel than the one revealed to Paul by God. If anyone preaches a gospel that says, all you need to do is invite Jesus into your heart and you're good. Let them be anathema. I think it's no stretch to say that that falls under that, what Paul was saying in Galatians 1, which he repeated twice, let him be cursed. Let him be cursed even if an angel comes and says something other than what I am telling you in the name of the Lord. So there's no hope just just on profession alone. Hope is on the evidence of God working in your life because he has saved you in order to do so. It's a sad thing indeed that there are those presuming profit upon themselves And yet, to use the phrase that Paul uses from 1 Corinthians 15, yet they are still in their sins. Somebody might say that this line of thinking is opposed to, let's say, John 3. We know this well. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so people who oppose this idea of salvation's evidence would say things like, yeah, but it just says whoever believes. Whosoever believes. Come on, whosoever believes. Ridiculous. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what John records. I think it's clear that what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3 when he's speaking to Nicodemus is that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son in order for those who are his to believe in him and then have life. I think John 3.16 is one, one of the most Calvinistic verses that there are. It's just been twisted by the doctrines of man. It's, it's a beautiful verse of God's grace. 
So it is true, of course, whosoever believes, but Jesus is talking about faith as a gift that's intended from the work of Christ, you see. God, because of his love, gave his only son with a perfect intention of substitutionary sacrifice. And this great exchange of sin and righteousness in order that all who believe will have eternal life and never perish. That's John 3.16. So, we see here, so we're in verse 17, that James introduces us to a dead faith. And so, in this passage, there's three distinct kinds of faith that, that we are told. A faith from God, which is given for our salvation in its entirety, our, the entire orb of our salvation. There's this faith from man, the one that James is talking about, that is dead. And then, uh, further down in the passage, he introduces us to a demonic or a satanic faith, which also does no good. Right? The demons believe and they tremble. So just speaking of faith, just willy-nilly, like this big blanket, like, hey, faith, faith, faith. I mean, that's not enough. We must understand God's purpose. Also, when you think of the two faiths that man can possess, godly or manly, godly is a living faith, a faith unto life. And not just life as something you possess, but life as something that you express. And then there is the manly faith, and that's the dead faith. That's the faith where somebody presumes upon themselves salvation, and then, sadly, they are still in their sins. Verse 18, James goes on to, to say, but somebody will say, you have faith and I have works. Trying to make a distinction. And then he says to that, show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. And he's showing us here that there is an inseparability of faith from God and the works that follow. A living faith brings about a life of faith. Right? And so, so there I see an easy, an easy line drawn to Ephesians 2. I'll read it. If you'd like to turn there, go ahead. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. But emphasis on verse 10, especially... This is Paul saying in Ephesians 2, 8, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Okay, so wait, is Paul contradicting James? I don't think so. I think they are complementing each other beautifully. Because even he goes on to say from there, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ." created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And Paul isn't saying should as if it's an option. You know, you really should do this. It's not the option, it's the plan. Just as your salvation was a plan, so too these good works that were created in Christ Jesus to walk in is the plan as well equally. If somebody would like to say, well, you know, good works that I should walk in, well, we'll see. I mean, I would say to them that, you know, well, we'll see about your salvation. You can't have it both ways. Our faith lines up with our life. No matter what our faith is, godly or manly. Back in James, in verse 19, continuing on, he says here that you believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe, and they tremble. And so this is where I'm getting that idea of demonic faith. See, this isn't the faith that is given by God. This isn't even the faith that is constructed by man. This is not the Hebrews 11 faith. This is just a mere acknowledgement of who God is Somebody might boast in their doctrine of God, but even man's greatest intellect couldn't compare to that of Satan's. I don't want to go toe-to-toe with Satan on intellectual things. In the power and in the might of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I will, if God deems that to be the case, I'd never seek that out. But if that were ever to be the case, I'm not going to be like, I got this. So what James is saying here is that consider this, will you? Consider the vast knowledge of the Scriptures and of the history of the church and of God Himself and the presence of God and the heavens and the angels that Satan possesses. Even in his twisted, lying, murderous mind, He possesses a lot, but it does him no good. And with such a faith, he trembles in fear because he knows he's doomed. So again, think of, think of perhaps our own thoughts at one time in our lives or our conversations with another. Of course I believe in God. Well, we need to, we need to qualify that, don't we? Well, what do you mean you believe in God? Like with a demonic faith? <laughs> I mean, that would be an interesting insert into a conversation, right? <laughs> but, I mean, we need to know these things. We need to know that we need to proclaim that it is God who does the work for His own name's sake to bring glory to Himself. We do not argue and convince based on intellect. We pray that God will work in the hearts of men to bring about this faith that produces good works. Now, when we get to verse 20, we're switching gears to give two scriptural examples of lives lived, proving faith from God. Faith unto works is living, God-giving, God-given faith. So we're going to see with Abraham in verses 21 to 24 and Rahab in verse 25, we're going to see this idea, this picture of being created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. Now, to some, I think probably for the, you know, since James was written, um, this 
this passage in particular has caused uh, um, has been a stumbling block, has been confusing. Has it say, well, are we saved by works? Are we saved by faith? What's going on here? I think when James goes back to Abraham, especially regarding his being tested and sacrificing his son, and then from there, Genesis 22, going back to Genesis 15, saying Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, what James is clearly saying is that Abraham really had godly faith. Here's how it's proven. And Rahab really had godly faith. And here's how it's proven. So in verse 21, we see James introduce Abraham, and he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And then we're all like, what? Justified by works? Well, we just need to explain it. We just need to see how the Scripture is congruent, how it fits together. It's already been established that works prove faith. Faith is always followed by works. That's been established. So he's not contradicting himself here. The works of a man always show the kind of faith that he has, whether it be godly or manly. Right? So it's not that Abraham was made righteous because of his work on Mount Moriah, about to slay his own son to obey God, that didn't make him righteous. It proved him righteous. Because think about the promise. Abraham, look at the stars. Number them if you can. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. I don't have a child. How? And then fast forward. Here's Isaac, the son of the promise. Abraham, sacrifice your son where I will tell you, as I will tell you. Listen, guys, uh, Isaac and I, we're going to go up there and we're coming back. Mm, that's amazing. That's true faith. And then he goes and he binds his son. And, and Isaac has great faith too, doesn't he? To let his father bind him? To just trust in his father's knowledge of the will of God and faith in the promise of God? I think that's amazing. I think God is working such grace because because man couldn't do such things on their own. So that's what James means when he says that Abraham was justified by his works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect or complete? For the sake of time, we're not going to turn here, but... Can I bring to our recollection the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? It's 25, 14 through 30. It's a long passage. We won't read it. But there we see this distinction between godly faith and manly faith, between three people, all who would call 
Jesus their master, all who would be part of the visible church. Two of them had godly faith, and they took the talents that Jesus gave them, and and they they got a good return on it. One of them had manly faith and did not show forth through his life godly works and just buried the talent in the ground. And, and because of his works, proving that he never had that right relationship with his master, well, Jesus switches it basically from parable talk. And at the end of that passage in verse 30, well, I'm going to read that one verse. At the end of that passage in verse 30, Jesus says something amazing, proving that it was manly faith. So Matthew 25, 30. Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's showing us without a doubt that there are those who think they are gods, but their lives prove otherwise and, and their professions don't hold up for anything. They profits them nothing, right? Um, it's amazing. To profit greatly, enter into the joy of your Lord is what's said to the two that um, bring a return on what God has given them and prove out their faith through their lives. One gains nothing, and in fact, there's a net loss. What he has, take it away. Give it to the other one. So back in James in verse 22, godly faith and godly works are truly a match made in heaven. Neither one of them are single. They never act on their own. That's what James is saying. So verse 23, when we see James quote, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and and then he says, and he was called the friend of God, we ask, you know, why was this account of Isaac as a sacrifice relevant to Abraham's justification by faith? Well, it's because this is the heir that God promised he would bless the nations through. Abraham acted in faith that his good God would work his good work of salvation. And by faith he obeyed. And then we get to verse 25 with Rahab. Let me read verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Again, James explaining himself. It's Justified by faith, faith and justification proven by works. And then we see Rahab brought into this. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So Rahab was also given faith by God to do works for God. Now, why is Rahab with Abraham? I think it's to show simply that either you have godly faith or you don't. That's it. It doesn't matter how great of a man you are in society, what your accumulated wealth is, what your family status is compared to a prostitute. You either have godly faith or you don't. 
Perhaps there's another reason James brings in Rahab. I mean, he could have used many different examples, couldn't he? But this is what the Lord ministered to me. The Rahabs that God grants faith unto, unto works, they have gain indeed. And all the non-Rahabs of the world that only have a depraved knowledge of God in delusion and in death, which mislabel it faith, they will gain nothing. That's why. To show that it is all of grace. In verse 26, again, we see a distinction here. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Living faith and a dead faith. Whether you're Abraham or Rahab, if you're, giving, if you're given a living faith by God, then you will live forth that faith. So, what is the contextual fruit that James is looking for here to prove this life versus death that he ends the chapter with in verse 26? Well, it's love. It's love. And not just love in word, but love indeed. You know, if we go back earlier in the chapter in verse 8, we see, because this is all the context of what he's saying here, we see, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. And so he's talking about not showing partiality. You know, somebody rich comes in, like Abraham, and say, oh, brother, come up here. Yeah, we... uh collect the offering at just about let's see, you know 10:40 10:45 and then somebody comes in and they're all you know rags and dirty and smelly and you're like we have a seat for you thanks for coming tonight um you want to go back over there right that partiality that James is condemning in in other words that God is as sin is one that is Coming from a heart that, well, at least potentially, doesn't have godly faith. Somebody can say, I've constructed this faith of myself, and I believe in Jesus, and look at this rich guy, come here, come here, come on, buddy, what's up? And then, like, poor dude over there. But, that's anti-gospel. Love your neighbor as yourself. So there's the context. What is the fruit that James is looking for to prove that you have been justified, these works of proof? It's love. It's actually saying, well, you don't have any clothes, you don't have any food, my brother, my sister, have mine. That's, that's what James is saying. And also, right prior to, what we, to where we started our, our text, the other is to not only love our neighbor as ourselves, but to be merciful as we have received mercy in verses 12 and 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. And not only to be merciful as we have received mercy, but to be merciful in expecting mercy, because Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, right? And so in verses 12 and 13 in James 2, he says, so speak and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And think of the 
brethren showing partiality. Right? You're not showing mercy. You're not representing God. You're not loving in the name of Christ. So you will experience judgment without mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. So shall we live lives of sacrificial love and mercy just as we have received? And I'm not going to skip this long passage, sorry. But we will end with this. So I think this is a good picture of mercy triumphing over judgment and a true work of God in the heart of a woman giving her godly faith and then she acts on it and she lives it. Just like Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. So let's close with turning to Luke chapter 7, please. Luke 7 and starting in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go. In peace. What a great picture of the difference between Pharisaical, religious, manly faith unto death and by God's grace, a gifted, 
granted godly faith unto life. Each avenue, life and death, proving out the states of the hearts by how they act, specifically towards Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for your love for us, God. Thank you that you laid your life down in our place. You gave yourself for our sins and even for us. And yes, in our place, but not only, it was so that you might possess us, so that you might purchase us with the blood you shed on the cross as our sacrificial substitute. Enabling forgiveness eternal. Bringing about this opportunity to have a relationship with you, that which we would never be able to on our own. We could construct the greatest definition of faith, and yet if you haven't worked in our hearts, it profits us nothing. Lord, since we know you and we are yours and you have worked in us, well, let our lives reflect that, please, for you. That we might truly love our neighbor as ourselves. That we might truly love the brethren sacrificially as we love you. That we might truly be merciful as we have received mercy. Even spending that which is the greatest of our possessions. Even spending our lives themselves for your sake at your feet. Here we are, basking in the love of our Savior. May we not veer or stray at all from those good works that we were created in Christ Jesus to walk in, but may our lives glorify you and reflect the grace that you have given us in our salvation It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.